scripture reading from today will be from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. You can follow me on the screen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Pyrrhus and Zerah by Tamar, and Pyrrhus the father of Ezron, and Ezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Ezekiah, and Ezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jehoniah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of Shethiel, and Shethiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel was the father of Abud, and Abud was the father of Elahim, and Elahim was the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Ahim, and Ahim the father of Elud, and Elud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. We're going to be taking a number of weeks moving through the Gospel of Matthew and the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And we're beginning right here today, which is either one of the most boring passages you've ever heard read or one of the most beautiful. At the end, we'll let you decide for yourself. And, uh, you know, you may think that because as modern readers, your eyes, your ears, your brain typically freezes and your eyes glaze over. When you read or hear a list like that because of our cultural moment today. We think, you know, if this is a story, where's the story part? You know, where's the exciting stuff? You know, where's the part where the Death Star blows up? You know, where the guy proposes to the girl at the end? Well, in truth, Matthew could not have begun in a more exciting and dynamic place than right here, if you'll see it rightly, because what he manages to show us in just a list of names, as I hope you'll see, is how something new is not just reaching out to the world, but breaking into it. What Matthew is going to manage to show us, even in a genealogy, is nothing less than the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. So let's ask, where, how can we see this in-breaking, breaking in? Well, it's through three ideas, three concepts this morning. First, through the begats. Second, the begottens. And third, the woe-begottens. 
Let's begin number one. Look at the begats here. Look at verse one and two. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. All right. Well, right away, you see Matthew, the writer, doing something significant by saying one phrase over and over again. In a lot of translations, you get what we read here today where he says, the son of But as some of you know, who are from a more traditional church background, in the old King James, it was the phrase, what? Begat, yeah, thanks. So-and-so begat so-and-so. Let's ask then, so who is the first begat? Who does Matthew point us to first to figure out, to help us see who Jesus is? Who does he start with? It says, verse 2, Abraham. He points to Abraham. He doesn't start with Adam, the first human, as, uh, as uh, the, uh, the book of Genesis tells us. Uh, the gospel writer Luke, over in his genealogy, he starts with Adam, but Matthew begins with Abraham. Why? Here's why. Because thousands of years before Matthew, back in Genesis 15, we read God made a promise to Abraham in which he said that through Abraham's family, Through his seed, he would save the world. And so from generation to generation, a seed was passed down. And every Jew knew, every Jew was taught that one day, one Jewish child would grow up to be the Messiah, who would be the healer of their land and the savior of the world. And the point of the the genealogy is watching that seed, that promise, being passed down from generation to generation. We see the seed survive famine, the seed survive slavery, the seed survive anarchy and barbarity until another notable name appears in it. It's the second key name at the beginning Matthew points to. Who? Verse 1. It's David, Israel's greatest king. And by the time of David, we see that Abraham's family had grown into a nation of its own with a people and a king and a culture and had God's special law. And then after David, we read the names of Jewish king after Jewish king until the whole thing falls apart with the deportation to Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, you may know, came in, crushed Jerusalem, the capital of Jewish culture. He broke the monarchy and the seed went into captivity. And then the seed, the promise, went silent for centuries and was passed down in obscurity until we come to a poor Jewish family living in, of all places, David's own old, oh, David's old hometown, the town of Bethlehem. And now, finally, after what seemed like an eternity, the begats ended and a new beginning began. And that's quite a story, but let's ask, what do we learn from all these begats? I mean, what's the point of starting with Abraham and then making us read all those names in a list longer than the list of promises presidential candidates make in an election year? Here's the point. Unlike presidential candidates, who are only people, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Matthew has shown you that God made a promise... And God keeps his promises. No matter how long it takes or how slow it seems in coming. And that's good news for you today. Because if you're here and in some way you have been broken by by, by, by your past. You're uncertain uh, about your present. You don't know what your future is going to be like. You're thinking about giving up on it. Here's what I want you to do today. I want you to go home today. 
pick up Matthew chapter 1. Read it again and again and say to yourself, self, look at this. Look at this. Look at this. God made a promise and God always keeps his promises. And God is always on time with his promises, even if it's not your time or my time. Uh, my favorite uh, college professor uh, that I had at the University of Houston was an older Jewish man who taught this philosophy course that I took, and, and he asked me a question one day that I'll never forget, and uh, this professor knew I was a baseball player, he loved baseball, and so he took an interest in me and invited me into his classroom, excuse me, into his office to have a chat about a paper that I wrote for his class, and, and when it came up in the conversation that I was a Christian, he asked me that question. He asked... He asked, do you believe that Jesus could have come into the world at any time, or did he have to be born when he was? In other words, he said, could he have been born, you know, in the 20th century? It would have solved a lot of problems, he said, because, you know, we'd have like videotape. We could have interviewed him. Or, or could he have been born a lot earlier in human history? So, you know, we could have avoided lots of other problems. He said, Christian or not, it's hard to deny that the world became noticeably brighter when Jesus came into it. Why, why didn't his light come into the world earlier? He said, could Jesus have been born at any time and have had the same effect, or did it have to be at that time? Now, before I tell you what I answered, let me remind you what I said earlier. I said I was a Christian not a theologian at the time. And you're saying, well, Morgan, not a lot's changed, and that's true. But I said, hmm, hmm. I think he could have been born at any time. I mean, right? I mean, why not in South America in the 14th century or, you know, China in the 5th century? And he looked at me and said, you are a Christian, right? I said, yes, I am, sensing I had chosen poorly, as the saying goes. But he said, if you're a Christian... Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? I mean, he's either sovereign or not. He either knows what's best for the world or not. If Jesus really is the Messiah, Morgan, if he's really the point of my Torah, if he really is the son of a sovereign God, as you say, don't you think he had to be born at the exact moment that he was? And then I sat there thinking, man, there's no way I make an A on this paper now. You know, like, he thinks I'm totally stupid. But he said, man, I'm just messing with you, just messing with you. want to see what you say. This has got nothing to do with your paper. But I've never forgotten it, obviously, because he was right. And that's what Matthew chapter 1 is showing you. Matthew is showing us that God knows what he's doing in history what he's doing in our nation, what he's doing in your life, even when it doesn't look like it or feel like it or seem like it at the time, even when we like him to be on a different timetable altogether. His timing's perfect. And so I'll say to you what a Jewish professor said to me. If you're a Christian and you believe in a sovereign God, don't you think he is able to bring to pass at the right time his promise to you? Look at this list. I mean, look at it. God brought his promise about to the world despite famine, despite slavery, despite failure, captivity, and obscurity. No matter what, even above and beyond, even the colossal failings of his own people, even when the very people he picked to get himself involved with let him down and got in his way, he kept his promise. Don't, do you, don't you think that God can overcome even your failures? Don't ever think your failures can disqualify you from God using you today. 
If you're single here today and you're wanting to get married, because I know you are, and it seems like it's just taken God a long time, right? You may feel like it. But he has promised you, if you will delight yourself in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. If you're married, you're trusting God for a child. Seems like it's taken God a long time for that thing to come to pass. Remember, he's made you a promise. If you delight yourself in him, he'll give you the desire of your heart. If you're trusting God for a job today uh, and that hadn't come through, you're trusting God for a healing in your body or that change in that world or a change in that person sitting next to you today. And it's taking a long time. Remember, God's made you a promise. If you will delight yourself in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, maybe your desires may change, your heart might change, or maybe that thing, yeah, yeah. Maybe it does happen exactly the way that you're trusting for. But either way, you've got a promise, and God always keeps his promises. Look what he did for Abraham. Kept his promise, didn't he? Though it took thousands of years for the world to be ready, maybe it's taken you thousands of hours or thousands of days even to be ready for God's promise to come to pass. Either way, you can look at this list. You can look at the begats and know if it was true for Abraham, it's true for you. And by the way, that is the beginning point of true faith. It's looking at God's word. It's finding a promise. And I can't tell you how many times at a crisis point and moment in my life, I've done that. Gone to God's word, uh, facing an unbelievably challenging circumstance. Find a promise and say, God, this is either true for me or it's true for no one. And that's what you can do with this list. You go to the begats. God, you made a promise. And you're keeping your promises to me. But what's even more amazing, fascinating than the truth, that God keeps his promises is how he keeps his promises. And that's the second way that we see God in breaking into the world through the life of Jesus. We're going to see not just through the begats, but actually... Through the begottens. Number two, the begottens. That is, the loved ones. Those who have been fathered. That's what the word means. And who are the loved ones? Which ones does this God love? Let's back up a bit. When we read the genealogy earlier, here's what you probably thought. You probably thought two things. Number one, you you thought, man, I feel sorry for that guy having to read all those names today, you know. (laughs) Tough draw for that guy, And second, you probably thought, man, what's the deal with these old cultures and their fascination with family lists? And the reason you probably thought that is because, again, most of us are products of a radically individualistic culture where it really doesn't matter who came before us, who our father was, what our mother did, but we still make lists of important things to show people who we are. They're called resumes right? Resumes. We don't point to our families anymore, usually, to show our worth. No, we point to ourselves, our, our academic credentials or our professional accomplishments. We still list, you still list on your resume some references, right? See, those people begin with their families. We begin with ourselves. But here's the point. Everybody points to something to say, here's who I am. And that's what this list of people is. It's Jesus' resume. And typically, if you want to make yourself look good on your resume, what do you do? Come on, you know. 
you don't list the job where you got fired from, right? You don't put about that time you got demoted. And you certainly don't put on there a list of folks you think, no, will give you a bad reference. So what are you, what are you doing? You're screening out anything that could make you look bad. But who is on Jesus' list? Who's on his resume? Well, first of all, this, this list includes what almost no other list in his day would ever include, and that is five different women. Look at them. It says Tamar, then Rahab, third Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. Well, you ask, what's so amazing about this? Well, first of all, you may know that women were rarely included on lists like these. Why? Well, of course, it was a patriarchal society. Men worked outside the home. Women usually didn't. So women didn't have as many opportunities, perhaps, to do something to show up on a resume. But women in this day, when this was written, were seen as unreliable sources. They were seen as having morally deficient character. They were prohibited from testifying in court. But here, from the beginning... Uh, The gospel of Jesus, far from upholding some patriarchal structure, the gospel writer is breaking this glass ceiling, and he's saying the begottens of God are not just men, but women. It's all people. See, we read past these women's names, and we think, so what, women? But that's only because someone had the courage to put them in there in the first place. But The power of this goes way beyond this because we have to ask, well, who are these women? First, Tamar, you may know, had a set of twins by one of the Jewish patriarchs, Judah, who was her father-in-law, which meant by Mosaic law, she had committed incest and would have been prohibited from ever entering God's presence. Second, there's Rahab, who was a prostitute in the ancient city of Jericho. She, she saw a way out of her doomed life, doomed city, put her faith in the one true God to rescue her and her family. Then there's Ruth, who wasn't even Jewish at all. She was a Moabitess, a pagan idol worshiper who found God through her mother-in-law and became the great-grandmother of King David. And then at the end of the line, there's Mary, who became the ultimate social outcast in that day. She was an unwed, teenage, pregnant mother. You've got idol worshipers, prostitutes, sexually broken, an unwed, pregnant lady, all being pointed to as people Jesus is proud to list, proud to call his own, proud to put on his resume, and proud to point you to the, on his resume, the begotten's. The beloved are the outcasts, especially the sexual outcast. Those who have blown it in life or are on the margins of society. And See, in ancient genealogies, kings, oh, they'd always point to how pure their line was, how noble their line was, to make a case for why their blood was pure and why you should follow them and believe in their pedigree. But Jesus' line is fundamentally different. See, Matthew's showing you, yeah, 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 Jesus is. He is the end of the line. He is the seed of seeds. He's the promised one, but he's more than that. Matthew's showing you not just Jesus' kingliness, but his utter commonness. I mean, have you ever seen a king like him? A king who can and will pull anyone into his family. Some of you have likely heard of a man by the name of Bill Hybels. He's a pastor of a a large church in Chicago called Willow Creek Community Church. A great church. It's worked hard to transform entire communities there. And in one of his books, Bill tells this story, fascinating story, about a moment 
that changed his life. Uh, he had been out of the country, as the story goes. He'd been traveling, he'd been speaking, and then came back to the U.S., was waiting on his connection home to Chicago. And, of course, all he wanted to do, which is like you when you get back, you, all you want to do is grab a cup of coffee, maybe, read a book or a newspaper. And then he said, it began. There were two boys who looked like brothers who began to squabble and fight a bit. The older one looked about eight. The other one was about five. And Bill watched them wrestle, and then the wrestling got a little rowdier, and then Bill got grumpy and thought, man, you know, there's a lot of noise here. I just want to read my paper. And, but he thought, oh, they're just being boys. It's okay. But then it got worse. Whack. He put his paper down, and he heard the sound of the older brother slugging, hitting the younger one right across the face. And he saw the younger boy begin to cry, and the red welt begin to rise. And then it got worse again, because in full view of everyone, that older brother silenced the whole gate by rearing back and slugging as hard as he could his five-year-old brother across the face again. It crumpled his little brother fell to the ground. And then that was more than Bill could take. He stood up and yelled, of course, where are these kids' parents? No response. So he got up and he went over to try to break it up. But on the way, it got worse again because he watched as the older brother flipped over the younger brother, got on top of him and began to smash his face into the tile floor of the airport, smashing his brother's face in a pool of blood. And at that moment, on his way over to help, Bill heard, of course, the final boarding call for his flight. And he had to make a decision. Do I get involved and maybe risk missing my flight or stay and do something about what I'm seeing? So he decided to stay. And he pulled the younger brother uh, away from the older. And he held them apart at arm's length. Of course, the younger brother bleeding all over him. And while he's holding them apart, the gate agent came up to him and said, If you're Mr. Hybels, you've got to get on this flight right now. It's going to leave with or without you. So reluctantly, let the boys go apart. He shoved them into the hands of the gate agent and said, keep those boys apart and find their parents. He ran to his plane, barely made his flight, sat down. But of course, he was shaken by what he had seen and heard. And he tried to clear his mind. But Bill said he heard the Holy Spirit speak to him. Think about what you saw. Consider the implications and let your heart be gripped by that reality. So he did. He began to think about what he saw. He began to think about that older boy's life, that older boy's heart, and what maybe even that older boy had been through to cause him by age eight to be so violent toward his own brother. And he wondered who that boy's parents were, and, you know, what neglect maybe he had suffered, and what hope that boy could even have to have his life changed from the, the course that it was on. I mean, after all, if by age eight he's doing that to his own brother, what is he going to do by the time he's a teenager, young adult? What's he going to throw then? Knives? Bullets even? Where will he end up? Uh, with a great career, with a family, or will he end up in prison? And then Bill thought, well, what could? What could change that boy's life? I mean, could great legislation, maybe? Could a great school or a great coach? And he thought, well, you know, laws are great, but laws just move the yard markers around on the playing field. And that's important. It's crucial to have a level playing field. But he asked himself, could a law alone, all by itself from a government somewhere, cause a young man to repent? And ask for forgiveness. Then he thought, well, schools are great, crucial. I mean, education is part of a great life and culture. But could a classroom alone heal the abuse or neglect an eight-year-old has already suffered? 
And he thought, well, a great coach or teammate. And that's amazing to be a part of. He coached his own kids' stuff. But he asked himself, could athletics, sports alone, transform a broken life or heal a broken heart? And then it hit Bill, of course. The only thing that could do all of that was the inbreaking power of the love of Jesus Christ. The love that conquers sin, heals shame, pulls enemies together, reconciles the world, one begotten, one beloved life at a time. And then Abel again. Well, that's the message that God has given to me. And Jesus has committed to us his church, which itself is only a group of begotten's, of beloved's, all changed and marked by that same love. And he said that moment, that story, catalyzed, crystallized his vision for what the church should be and how it should look. And then he went on to write about it, about what he realized in that moment. Bill Hybels wrote this. He says, there is nothing like the local church when it's working right. Its beauty is indescribable. Its power is breathtaking. Its potential is unlimited. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It builds bridges to seekers and offers truth to the confused. It provides resources for those in need and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, the disillusioned. It breaks the chains of addictions, frees the oppressed, and offers belonging to the marginalized of this world. Whatever the capacity for human suffering, the church has a greater capacity for healing and wholeness. Now let me ask you, I mean, where did he get that idea from? I'd say you could start right here in Matthew 1, which is itself, in a way, a list of the first church of Jesus, full of sufferers, right? Full of outcasts, full of marginalized. And by the way, church, when we are at our best, that is who we are. That is who we are together. That's who you are. We are the church, what Bill Heibel said. We are the begotten. We are the beloved. Those who have had lives in broken by the strange king and who now ourselves begin to break into the world around us. Let me ask you, is there someone whose life needs, in a way, not home, but life, breaking into? That you know this week, I'm pleading with you, don't go another week without getting up out of your chair like Bill Hybels did. Do you see something that's broken? You don't need my permission. You don't need your permission. The second uh, person's permission next to you, you just get up and go. Get up and go. Hasn't he called us to go into all the world and make disciples? I mean, maybe it's you getting up out of your seat, helping us finish that transition in MKids. We thank you for it. Maybe it's you getting up out of your seat and then grabbing that person you know is struggling, going to coffee with them this week, encouraging them in their faith. It's called discipleship, right? Maybe it's you starting something new to reach those kind of people. Listen, God wants to grow. This is showing us his beloved, his begotten family, and he wants to use you to do it. You say, all right, down for that. Let's ask, where does the power come from to do all of that and more? It's here. Number three, let's see. Not just the begats, the begottens, but the woe-begottens. Now, right about now, if you've been keeping score at home, and you may be saying, Morgan, you, you, you mentioned, I mentioned ago, uh, a minute ago, you mentioned five names of different women, but you only talked about four of them. What's up with that? What was the name of the fifth woman that Matthew mentions? And the answer is, technically, Matthew doesn't give you a name for her. He gives you a story. 
Who was this fifth woman? Look at verse 6. It says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Every commentator you'll ever read will tell you how stunning and significant this is because Matthew doesn't mention this woman by name. Some translations do because they think that you need the help. But Matthew doesn't put it in. He only says this woman is the wife of Uriah and the mother of Solomon. So who is the wife of Uriah? The mother of Solomon. Oh, every Jew in that day knew, and likely you do as well today. It's one of the most famous and tragic stories of sin and failure in the Bible outside Adam and Eve. And it's the story of David with a woman named who? Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. A man David had murdered after he impregnated his wife while Uriah was out fighting for David in a foreign war. Bathsheba is the name of the fifth woman, the fifth begotten, the fifth beloved woman. See, Matthew, he tells you all the names of all the other women except this one. Why? Oh, don't you recognize great storytelling when you read it? He's making you fill in the blank. And in doing so, oh, he's taking you on a trip and making you remember David's failure Not to shame David, he's already honored David back up in verse 1 at the top of the list. But he's doing it now to prove a point, which is this. That in Jesus' line, and therefore in his coming kingdom, a king is no better than an adulteress. A king is no higher than a prostitute or an idol worshiper. And to get into this kingdom, Matthew is saying, the first thing you've got to recognize is that neither are you and neither am I. To get in, you've got to humble yourself and believe what Matthew is showing you here. Apart from Jesus, all are woebegottens. All are lost and outside the family of God. There's a story, true story actually, about this pastor guy I know. He's a really good looking guy, about five foot, ten inches, gorgeous wife. Maybe one day you'll meet him, I don't know. But um, this guy I heard of, he tells the story. He told me the story about his very first day. The pastor of this church he came to work at, and he said the church was in a tough place at the time, and he was excited to get back there and to try to help all the people who he really knew needed his help. And he, he said he got there early on his first Sunday, and as he walked in, the very first person that he met was this kind-looking lady who later moved to another, another city. And he thought, well, man, here's the first person that I can help. And he said the lady walked up to him and said this, Oh, pastor, pastor, I need your help. And he thought, of course you do. It is me after all. Stand back, Christian person, while I help you. And she said to him, this is what he said. She said, oh, it's the devil, the devil. He's all over me. I can't stop thinking about him. He's all in my mind. He's going to get me. But I can't talk about it anymore. I got to go back and hold babies in the nursery. (laughs) He says, she just turn around and walk back uh, for the children's area, wherever that might be in that church. And <laughs> while he stood there dumbfounded, what just happened, he thought. Still no matter, he thought, there are plenty of people that I can help who's next. And so he said he made his way to the other side of the building where the very next person he ran into was a guest and who came up to him and said, so you're the new pastor, huh? He said, yeah. And the guy said to him, So what do you think about the end times? The book of Revelation. What's the mark of the beast? Who's the Antichrist? (laughs) 
He told me, he said to him, well, there are um, like traditionally four main views on how to interpret Revelation, but I'm really not going to talk that much about it today. He said the guy didn't like that answer, got up six inches from his face and said, well, don't you think you ought to talk about it more if you're the pastor? He said, I guess, hey, where's the restroom? (laughs) So he told me he ducked into the restroom to hide. Uh, He gave himself his best pep talk and tried to convince himself that he could help these people. And the service began, thank God. And then during the time of worship, like we had today, and the time of singing, some people were invited to to come down for prayer. And he thought, well, you know, I'm a little nervous, but I'll go up there. I got a title after all. I should probably go up and... And then came up his very first person to pray for, church. And he was thinking, I can do this. You know, what, is, what, what do you need, like, like a miracle? Uh, you know, no problem. A, a Bible verse, I've got that. A, a hug, you know, I can do that. Or, or would, this, would this lady say, this first person was a lady, would she say, I'm so glad you're finally here to help me? And he said that she said this, I'm thinking about leaving the church now that you're here. Would you pray for me to know whether I should leave or not? <laughs> he said the, the sheer shock of it, you know, caused PTSD to kick in. It's pastor's traumatic Sunday disorder. And a few of you know about that. And he said, but okay, shake it off. You know, you're going to still help these people do your, your great sermon. But he knew he was up against some high expectations. The guy that was there before him was an older guy and known, known as a Bible teacher, expert guy. And the guy before him had this large mailing list of people who actually, you know, wanted his stuff week after week. And he was consistently good. Old Testament stories, New Testament insights, preaching workshops. The other guy had, had done it all. And that's what people were accustomed to. And so... What did this pastor guy bring? Uh, I brought, I mean, he brought some really clever attempt at being relevant. The title was, Why the Answer is a Mystery. Ooh, yeah. It's catchy, right? It's catchy. The response, (laughs) silencio, as they say. Crickets, man. Nada. He said it it was like trying to hand out Hillary Clinton t-shirts at an NRA rally. You know, nobody wanted it. (laughs) He said to me, he said, you know, the only good thing about that week's sermon, he said, at least it was better than the next week's. (laughs) True story. And really, I had failed those people on that day. If you were there, sorry about that. How? Well, I thought I was the one who could fix them. I was the one who could help them make them all right. But looking back, though, I learned what I needed to. In my first day, I learned that I was the one who needed the help. I needed to learn. I was no better than that struggling lady in the nursery, that strange man with the crazy questions or anyone else. I was a woe-begotten. And in his need, a need is of much help from Jesus as anyone. Let me ask you, do you know this? Do you believe this? Do you know that the king and the prostitute, the, the educated, the ignorant, the morally good or the morally broken are in need not just of rescuing? 
but continuing rescue. See, we're all looking for a way to make ourselves somebody, to give ourselves a, a name, to be someone. And the way most of us do this as Americans is to look down at someone else, which is what I was doing. See, we think, oh, those people, they're morally bad, morally wrong. They vote for a fill-in-the-blank kind of candidate. Oh, or we think, and I can be good without God today. That's what we say in America. Oh, but don't you see what, what Matthew is saying? He's saying the point of the gospel is that it isn't for those who think they're good, but it's for those who know they're not. That's the heart of Jesus' message. I mean, what was the beginning of Jesus' most famous teaching? He said, blessed are the who? Oh, the rich in spirit. No, the, oh, the middle class in spirit. Oh, no, the poor in spirit. Those who bring nothing before God. Those who say the words of the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. See, not those who think that somebody else is the one in need of help, but the one who renounces his own name and admits he or she is such a moral failure. He can't make it apart from saving by Jesus. Oh, it's humbling. It's offensive. But that's what Matthew's saying. I mean, look at the genealogy. Do you even know why we are remembering these people today, these names? I mean, why were their names read? They were only read because they are connected to Jesus of Nazareth. They're only here because their names are connected to his. And sure, some of them are more well-known than others. But even David, the great king, had his kingdom fail. The monarchy ended. It was over for centuries. His line, his name would have fallen into obscurity and been forgotten if his name didn't end with the line of Jesus. Listen, your name, your name will be forgotten too. Most of you don't even know the names of your own great-grandparents. What makes you think your great-grandchildren will remember you? See, To get significance, a name, a life that counts, it starts when you say, I am one of the woe-begottens. And Jesus, I'm calling on you to bring me into your family today. The begat show us God keeps his promises. The begotten shows us who will rescue, which is anyone. And the woe-begotten show us where to begin. Let's pray as we close and go to him in faith.